A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you'd like to listen to this podcast ad-free and before it goes on general release, please consider becoming a patron from just £3 a month or you can give a one-off donation via Acast Supporter. Both links will be in the episode description. Hello and welcome to this new episode in Series 7 of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. Today we're talking about why you can never plan enough. This is one of my favourite subjects. I am a planner. I believe planning and organisation give you freedom. I find both immensely calming. But I suspect my idea of planning is small fry compared to that of today's guest, Professor Lucy Easthope. It's very hard to explain what Lucy does in just a few words, but let's start with the job titles. She's Professor of Practice of Risk and Hazard at the University of Durham and a professor in mass fatalities at the University of Bath. Lucy studied law at university and then went on to do a master's in disaster management and also has a PhD in medicine. She's a UK expert and advisor on emergency planning and disaster recovery, a world authority on recovery and disaster. She works with governments, often holding them to account, emergency services, and helps communities and families to recover from disasters. She's advised on pretty much every major disaster that's happened in the last two decades. The 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, which killed 230,000 people. The 7-7 terrorist bombings in London in 2005. The Grenfell Fire in 2017. And most recently, the Ukraine War. She often works on the ground, both literally and metaphorically, picking up the pieces. In 2022, Lucy published a best-selling book that talks a lot about her work and a little about her personal life, called When the Dust Settles, Searching for Hope After Disaster. It's a must-read and one that I recommend to all who will listen. If anyone knows about planning, it's Lucy. So, Professor Lucy Easthope, a hearty welcome to this podcast – Although so much of your work is global and big, what really got to me was how human it was, or perhaps more correctly, how human you make it. In doing this, you make the big small and relatable. I'd imagine most listeners don't need to plan for a global emergency. So I wonder if we can start off with the title of this episode, Why You Can Never Plan Enough. I'm keen to know how, as a mother of two and a woman with a seriously punchy CV, and with everything you've learnt, How much of a planner are you, Lucy, in your everyday personal life? And why do you think planning is important? 
Thank you for having me. Hello. I, hello. I de- hello. I definitely am a planner, probably to the detriment of all of those around me. I think it's one thing to have it as a job, but it's it, one thing I've really come to realise is actually you have to be very careful with your planning in family and home life. Sometimes I think it's a way that some of us will also manifest a certain level of anxiety. And one of the things we find in emergency planning is we we definitely find our tribe. We like saying our worries out out loud and that's indulged in our career so one of the things Mm. I've become very aware of is how I like to plan but also what's sort of almost ethical for me to do to other people particularly obviously my my husband and my children how much do I bring that home I did a newspaper interview recently and halfway through it I said oh oh no you're gonna make me look bonkers because I got very excited and excitable about how much I get ready for storms (laughs) And then yeah. I thought, somebody's going to safeguard my children. <laughs> because I, they said, do you, do you generate a drill for if there's a power cut? Well, of course I do. Do you have a generator? Um, of course I do. Right. <laughs> and so I suddenly thought, oh no, somebody's going to think this is really cruel. So they actually started the newspaper article with, Professor Lucy Eastow asked me to not make her look completely mad. But it's really important to me to be able to articulate what's around the corner Mum and dad make a lot of fun of me in um, interviews that they've given about the book where they say this was something she was doing since she was four or five. She'd want to know where we were going and what we were doing and what kit did we need. And the, the big story that they would always tell is that I gave them a very reasoned explanation as to why the stabilizers shouldn't be taken off my bike. That was clearly a very silly plan. And and it was very well reasoned and full of full of kind of worst case scenarios. So this is this is me. Yeah, just that clearly uh, there was a high risk of head injury and that I wasn't ready yet and that I probably would never be ready. And they should probably kind of just indulge the need for me to keep stabilizers for both my safety but also their time management because they didn't want to spend time in hospital. (laughs) And that's always that's the person Listen, I am. This is all music to my ears. Yeah, I feel we might be sort of maybe connected in some way, uh, maybe separated at birth. But where did you know all that from? Where did you get the ideas of head injuries and stuff so young? <laughs> I, I got in my 20s and started to think, am I constructing and confecting an idea of who I was as a child? No children are, are aware of this. And then what I started to realise through an amazing project that I was involved in with Lancaster University and Save the Children called Cuidar, which means take care in Spanish, was we connected children all around the world who were interested in risk and emergency management and many of them had been involved in things like earthquakes and landslides and stuff and they were very very attuned and they were very forceful that they weren't future citizens they were equal citizens and they were Mm. worried now about things and they wanted the chance to talk now about things and I suddenly realized that there were a few events I sort of opened the book with these the Herald of Free Enterprise which was a passenger ferry that had, had capsized and I had been on a school trip going past it and I'd seen it in the water aged about seven and that had had an effect on me and then even more profoundly the Hillsborough disaster of 1989 had affected me so by the time I got to 10 or 11 I was I was an activist I wanted to Mm. know how these could happen I also think Some of the things that we now castigate as being unhelpfully divergent will have been very important in, in, in our kind of tribe hundreds of years ago Thank you. 
know, I'm the sort of person that thinks about the winter in the spring. And mm-hmm. emergency planners, there's a lot of us women in emergency planning. And there's a lot of us who I think if we were in other professions would be quite stymied because our bosses would be saying, you're a catastrophist, you're a Cassandra. But actually in our field, it's a positive trait. And I know also you, I think if I'm correct in remembering this in the book, you mentioned how one of your first kind of views of a disaster was the Bradford City Fire, which you watched when you were about six on the television. Your dad didn't normally watch football, but it happened to be on. And of course, that unfolded on live television. And you said, why is no one helping him, a particular spectator who ran onto the pitch on fire? And I think that seems to be the whole sort of ethos of what you do is helping by planning. But in everyday life, like you've given us a snapshot there with your generator. I don't have a generator, but I have a battery power wall. And I'm so with you. The other day when there was a storm, I went to make sure it was set so that it would back up to 100%. So if there was an outage, we had some electricity. But I think that's sensible. If you have these things, then why not use them? I mean, I'd kind of love to be the kind of person who just lets life happen. I've never been like that either. But in everyday life, like, for example, what were some of the things that you said you prepare for winter and spring? What kind of thing would you do? Well, obviously, there's this constant thing of of having a work head and a home head. So in work head, you start getting hospitals and local emergency planners ready for difficult winters in about June, July, which can be very surreal. And then you're coming home and you're thinking, OK, I've just done that planning at work. What does that mean for the family? And one thing I would always say is I think the balance with a lot of us, I think, in emergency planning are in partnerships or in families where we really celebrate the other person in the partnership being perhaps less of a planner sometimes or maybe less Mm. of a worrier I'm always very interested in my work colleagues and their family dynamics because when I do see two planners together it can be a lot but for me I think one of the things that I would be looking at yeah god it could sound so boring I'm I'm a very fun person a, a great night out but you know you might be looking at oil prices early and some oils powers are heating or you might be looking at a little bit of prepping and prepping always gets such a bad rap in the UK but when you live in places like America and Australia the idea that you would keep some tins or you would have backup food supplies or you would have a hurricane room a much more kind of normal mm. <laughs> and I, and you know what I think is considered quite bonkers in the UK is considered good sense everywhere else so it's quite an interesting challenge I think the other thing that I've learned to do, I don't know if you find this similar, is sometimes you do have to, when you become a a parent, you do have to bury some of the really vocal planning because you kind of kill the joy if you're not too Mm. careful like today. and, And I found that my children do benefit from sort of knowing what a day might look like. But also one thing the pandemic really helped us all with as a family actually was disappointment. Because I think reasonably privileged British children had become very used to uh, so-and-so's party is at three and then we're going to Burger King at five. And these were the kind of decisions that they would get sort of all very excited about. And then with the pandemic, you really had to constantly disappoint them. We've been locked down or that's changed or so-and-so's ill. Or, and my children, I've really noticed are so much better now with change and uncertainty. And I'm grateful for that because that is something that I was very worried we were getting very bad at in the UK. Yes, because I think it's one thing to plan, but it's about also being flexible because of that phrase, the best laid plans. How good are you at changing path at short notice? Oh, I'm terrible. 
I'm terrible. Mm. I get so frustrated. I, I'm also a big believer in kind of that you rattle the fates. And I I sometimes think definitely in this sort of John Lennon song about life happens when you're busy making other plans. I think life loves to sort of laugh in your face when you've gone, oh, this will be a great weekend. And one thing, again, as soon as you have kids, uh, oh, this will be a great weekend. I've been working so hard. Life's been so stressful, but we're going to go for a mini break. And then everybody gets chicken pox on the Thursday. <laughs> I hate it. But you have to understand that. And I think another big part of my psyche is, and, and it's genuine, I think people think sometimes it's a shtick or it, it helped me make sense, but I don't really believe it. But it's so genuine is you only have today. That's absolutely all you have. So I am very good at, at going, okay, this has changed, but I'm just going to really enjoy this. I do find uh, the lack of certainty day to day is helped by being a disaster planner sometimes I know everything could get thrown up in the air if a big incident comes in in the next 24 hours colleagues have always been very good at making space for me to change my plans and I think that's really important in disaster response that you can change what you thought the week was going to look like or even the year yeah because so it sounds like you can be in the moment but maybe planning allows you to be more in the moment and I and I think the same bits of the brain that help you visualize and imagine the future that's what planning is and i'm very i'm very well known in my field for my imagination <laughs> i have some sympathy with the idea of kind of manifesting because <laughs> i think planning's a bit like that planning does involve mm. agency it, there is some steering towards things the bits of my brain that are acute to future and peril are also very active to pleasure and to excitement and to a really good new reality TV show. And, and my brain is very, very heightened, I think. And that works for planning, but it also works for, oh my goodness, this dessert is amazing. <laughs> and it, it's, the same, it's probably the same bits that are, are doing the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I also sometimes think that the most perfect days are the ones that you least plan because sometimes I can plan something too much and when I get there I can't feel it I remember as a child like we'd go to Italy and I would be so excited because my life in Italy was so different I grew up in central London but sometimes when I got there I couldn't feel it it would take me a few days and I don't know what that's about I've never found out what that's about I don't know if you recognize that feeling but sometimes we can have the most perfect days by not planning so that's kind of like a bit of a conflict in my personality but do you recognize I mean not in your work but in your personal life if you've can you plan something too much oh definitely and 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 you have to leave room for fallow that's a really important part of my life which is sometimes the 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 ability to suddenly realize that that afternoon is unexpectedly free and doing nothing at all with it or doing something very enjoyable and then the other thing is is kind of the spontaneity of life has to have space for that and of course there are great unknowns and things like opening yourself to the risk of love or the risk of having children all of these kind of things open you up to there's a much bigger process at, at play that you have no control over so I think yeah being spontaneous or, or controlled spontaneity we might say in, in my area of life we literally I think you'll empathize with this we'd booked a holiday and I, I literally sat the family down and said now this is what you guys want to do on the holiday and this is what I've planned for you and this is what I'd like to do on the holiday and for example I struggle with anything that says no checking of email for a week for example I'm Mm. much more content 
if I know that everything's sort of tidy and electronically, not necessarily the house, but sort of electronically con- content with the world. I've checked the news. I think I find things like digital detoxes very difficult for that reason. I relax best when I kind of know where everything is and what's going on. And then I'll have a couple of hours of controlled spontaneity and then I'm I'm happy. I think one of my greatest fears and possibly an expectation is that when my children get to their 20s, they turn around and say, mum, we love you and you are what you are. But a lot of the time you were in your own head. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very they're, they're only little but they're very benign to that at the moment and they're like oh mum's got into a disaster head <laughs> you know that's what oh, mum's gone into uh, mum's gone uh, got a disaster face on <laughs> you said we're training for the last disaster when we should be training for the next one And I wondered how you think we can apply that to everyday life. So it's really interesting because what we often do, and we do it in both our home lives and in my case, my work life, we'll look at what just happened and kind of agonize and analyze over it to the nth degree but actually we're not looking ahead and we not we don't do this thing that we call in disaster management isomorphic learning rather than taking the broader lessons from something and thinking they could work for any scenario we tend to agonize over that particular thing one of the reasons i get so much from any kind of problem page or agony request is it's extrapolatable if you know how, and that's the principle of, of isomorphic learning, is that we governments are very good at saying, we've just had a flood, we need to be ready for more floods. You go, no, you don't want to look at that necessarily the next time will be a flood. You want to look at your behaviours. You want to look at, at things that, regardless of the type of incident, because the next incident will throw different curveballs. It will tell us new things. And of course, there are themes that carry across. And I think a lot of family dynamics and family relationships fall into the same pattern repeating regardless of the crisis and that's that's also very very true I think the other thing is that point again about imagination so opening yourself up to the various scenarios one of the things that really struck me actually I get to all the best conferences, but I was at um, a, a cremations and burials conference last year. And they're often great for those kind of anecdotal experiences of death and society. And and one of the funeral directors stood up and said, you know, it used to be three in 10 families would have a really good idea when they came to the funeral director of what the person wanted. And then after the, the, the acute stage of the pandemic, it became nine in 10 families had those difficult mm. chats. And that's something... That's that's the planner in me. And, and, and one of the things that I've learned to do, and I, I read lots of stuff about, about delivering difficult messages in, in palliative care and all sorts of things, is when to say, I really want to talk about this. And I've, I've learned this. It's not for my ego or my needs, my planning needs to decide when those conversations happen. And there's always a wrong time to say, you know, has everybody got their last will and testimony in place? One of the things about planning, another word for it is kind of talking out loud. So saying at Mm. home, what are we going to do about this? And my dad, I, I lost my dad in the summer, which was just hugely kind of rocking. But one of the things my dad, there was no subject off off limits. We'd air what would happen if X. And that's what I think families need to do and it's an it's a it's an example of of citizen preparedness as well being able to say if this storm does x if this illness does x and 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 actually allowing people some people don't want to verbalize that's the other thing like don't don't enforce planning on everybody but this talking out loud can be so helpful into so many situations i think 
Well, I think that you're absolutely right. But I think most people would like to talk about planning a nice thing. But when we get into territory that's uncomfortable, you mentioned that people say, oh, you kind of like catastrophizing or whatever. I, I get that a lot. Or people are like, oh, no, let's not talk about that. That hasn't happened. Let's not kind of bring it forth by talking about things. But I'm the sort of person where I'm like, if I've spoken about it, facts comfort me. And if I've talked about it, it calms me down. And so I found I find certain people not helpful because they don't let me talk out loud. And so I think that that's a really important thing to talk about. It, But a lot of people don't want to. I have to say, in my experience, especially English people, but then you get my Italian family and they really do catastrophize um, or they can do. So there's this kind of weird kind of juxtaposition of not wanting to talk about something, wanting to talk about something so much that you become sort of almost anaesthetized to it. Just a quick question. What is isomorphic learning? So this is the ability to not be hung up on the situation itself. So you can only learn from a flood, how to manage a flood in the future from other floods. The first case study that I looked at in my master's degree was the collapse of Bearings Bank. So look at something that's so different from what you might be looking at or has some very difficult and specific features and just how how difficult that was to do was really brought home to me in the early stages of advising in the pandemic. And I would be bringing all these other examples of the times when we'd had to shut schools, for example. So things like school shootings and also lots of work that had gone on in Africa around the aftermath of Ebola. And British civil servants here were just so resistant to the idea of any other disaster other than a COVID-19 pandemic being brought Mm. to the table. There's a thing in many cultures' psyche of kind of bringing up the at the wrong time, not sort of humorous, kind of poorly analogous examples. So somebody says, "Oh, I've just been diagnosed with a terrible illness," and somebody else will say, "Well, I've I've got this issue with my goldfish." <laughs> it's like that's not isomorphic learning, but the isomorphic learning is sort of taking from the situation. It, kind of facts that would help you apply next time better decision making without getting hung up on the specifics of exactly what happened. Right, I see. The New Yorker wrote a a great piece on you, Sam McKnight did in May 2023. And I'm paraphrasing here from memory, but he said something like, students of disaster know that a small calamity often comes before a bigger one. Why is that true? And how can we take that into everyday life? Because I feel that's quite a good in to sort of family life, everyday life. Yes, and it's quite a challenge sometimes because I think one of the things that that I try to do is not always apply these things to family life in a way. Do they work in a context but not at home? So often, I I suppose it is uh, analogous in many ways. Often in the big disaster events that we see, there'll be a number of smaller events or near misses that give us an insight into what's about to go wrong. And I suppose an example in family life might be somebody, perhaps an older relative, who's been repeatedly scammed on a minor scale and then and all of a sudden you realise that she's been massively defrauded. So the warning signs are there, essentially. Mm. Or there's what we call incubation phase within the family. So there's things that are happening. One of the most common, I think, is probably when you are caring for an older relative and you see a kind of escalation in how their ill health is manifesting. So a series of bad falls. I will still and understandably see family not realise that they're probably building up to something quite catastrophic in their home. Yeah, and, and I recognise that. I think that's probably a good example of Whereas a planner, I'm going, this is all pointing one way. And there's a huge frustration sometimes if you can't bring the rest of the family to where you are. I think that can be quite 
quite difficult and sort of saying, no, this is what's going to happen if we don't do this. And that's very similar. I remember early on in the Hillsborough campaign for justice, the wonderful Professor Phil Scraton had done a lot of work on the earlier times at both other football stadiums, but also specifically the Sheffield ground at Hillsborough had failed essentially so that all the signs are there. And then there's ultimately lots of mini disasters and then the one big catastrophe and it's it's no different than kind of tolerating a knocking on your car and then there's a sensor comes on on your car and then the back wheel's not feeling right and there's a juddering at the lights it all builds up and one of the things that I'm very conscious of in modern Britain in 2024 is we've really lost a lot of our or we've had squashed out of us things like our ability to intuit and our ability to feel that something's not right and I think there's a growing recognition and a lot of new acknowledgement of things like the the role of intuition and the role of fear and the role of listening to the quiet and all of those kind of things. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I ask you a sort of a language question. What's the difference in between instinct and intuition in terms of planning? Well, I would need to check that, but I think my uh, definitions would probably be around, well, both are pretty unwelcome, really. And I would class them as as very similar. Possibly intuition is is a little bit more based on your past knowledge, skills and experience is, is, is something that I say in the book. Instinctive, I think, comes from that first gut reaction. And all of these are very important, mm. but we've just come through some really bad flooding. 
And all of us were very nervous as, as planners were often on WhatsApp groups and email groups. And we were all very nervous. Was this going to be a 2007? And there was things flying back, data river levels and all of these kind of things that were the, were the facts, if you like. And in our guts, we were just getting more and more worried about the flooding. And what's that? And that's not that's not kind of random. That's based on many of us now. You know, 2007 was at an earlier stage in our career. We're now getting older as planners. And that was one that, that really took uh, the country by surprise. So I think a lot of intuition is based on past knowledge. In women's health, it's based on things that are often marginalised. So we learn to minimise these feelings that we have in ourselves. I've been um, quite influenced at the moment. I'm reading um, Gavin Becker's The Gift of Fear. And that really rings a bell around when you just know from for many different reasons both visual and verbal clues and other things mm. that things aren't aren't right and that's really interested me yeah i read his book the gift of fear early on in my motherhood journey and i think maybe subconsciously i was looking for permission to be the way i am because yeah. i found that motherhood kind of ramped up a lot of my more extreme behaviors and I'm very hypervigilant for all sorts of reasons. And I think you're right. I think uh, intuition and instinct is seen as a very sort of female thing and often diminished and laughed at. But I think an informed intuition, which is, I think of it as based on past history, past information, but also that instinct you have there and then. But for listeners that don't know, he gives this wonderful anecdote of being at a conference. He gives a talk. And he says, how many of you here are parents? And X amount of hands go up. And then he says, how many of you have left your child with a babysitter? Fewer hands go up. And then he says, how many of you are not sure about the babysitter? And then fewer (laughs) hands go up. And then he goes, what are you doing here? Go home. And I thought, wow, we have that. And he also talks about how people who install like nanny cams or cams in care home settings, they often know something is not right, but they don't trust themselves. So they need the proof. And in some situations, we do need the proof. And you strike me as a very instinctive and intuitive person, although you're deeply academic. And in my experience, the two don't always mix, but I think that must give you an amazing edge in your work. And I also read that Tom, your husband, who is an airline pilot, his mantra was when there's doubt, there's no doubt, which is a bit what Rebecca was saying. And I've really been mulling that over because when we have a doubt about something, we tend to reason it away. So what does instinct bring to planning? I mean, that must be quite a powerful edge. And as I've got older, I've become much more confident about listening to it. And And I will say no those trees in the garden need to come down. I have a funny feeling about them in a storm. And then six months later, I'm proved right. And I think, there you go. Everyone was laughing at me. But I'm thinking, we have massive trees. There's a storm that's going to either destroy our house or next door's house. And I feel much happier cutting them down. But I'm not making that decision out of nowhere. There's a deep feeling in me, but I trust that more as I've got older. Do you recognise any of what I'm saying? Oh, completely. And of course, it's not a it's not a, a kind of uh, intangible feeling or a feeling that comes from nowhere at all. You what you can do as a planner is say if, if you're in a government meeting, we'd wrap this up in terms that would make it sound very manly. And- oh, tell me what those terms are so I can. You're use doing them. on those trees. You're doing a cost benefit analysis that the likelihood that they could come down is above fifty percent. The severity, if they did come down, could lead to loss of life. Therefore, and that's what you learn to do. <laughs> 
is an emergency planner. You learn to ape mm. certain languages that will allow you to stay in the room. And you mentioned Tom's work, and I think he, he borrowed where there is doubt, there is no doubt from both NASA and various uh, air forces around the country. And that mantra only works if you are in a very supportive space. So air forces that buy into it, or in his case, an airline that, that allowed the captain that level of power. And an example that I would give right from last week's work, I was doing some training with an area on emergency planning and the room was very, very cold. And some people wanted to style it out, but it was very obvious, you know, and actually particularly it was the women of the room. And this is relevant. People think I raise this woman point a lot, but it is relevant to our work. They were sat in coats and hats and gloves and they didn't want to style it out. And I was, there was a sort of muttering, do we move rooms as a warmer room upstairs? And the first break I moved rooms. Because what you could picture was the rest of the day would be so blighted by the temperature. And one of the things somebody said to me was, that's a great example of what you're trying to train us in today, which is making a fast decision. And actually, your trees could have had years ahead of them and they could have blossomed and looked lovely. And you made a decision. And it's not just about listening to intuition. It's about being comfortable with the ability to make a decision. And one of the things you see constantly in disaster inquiries is that people procrastinate about they're not empowered, they don't feel able to make the decision. And in your household, there there may be some mutterings, but you have the ability to make that call. And you will also see, I think, in my writing, but also things like the New Yorker profile, the cost and the toll that comes with not being able to make that call, like I did before the Grenfell disaster, like many people did before mm. the Grenfell disaster, that lives on in you in a, in a terrible toll. I think you know, one of the things that is difficult to take home to your personal life is if you start limiting people because you're afraid of what will happen to them. So my oldest daughter is really enjoying being a show jumper on her horse. And I could take my planning to the nth degree and say there's a very high likelihood of an accident with that. I'm going to stop it. But there's no way I would stop that joy. And so that's the cost benefit analysis that you're doing in your tree decision or your planning decision, whatever it is, you're working out what are the downsides of this risk. One of the other things you're living with there with your trees is a burden that we all carry as emergency planners, which is you'll never get to know whether you were right. (laughs) Because by acting early, you remove the risk. And that's what we call in, in the emergency planning world, the Y2K syndrome. So that means that we'll never know if the world was going to end at the last minute of 1999 and all of the mitigations that we put in place as planners made the difference to airlines and and chemical factories and all the safety work on computers or whether it was a nothing to begin with. You'll never know because if you mitigate a risk early, you don't get to be proved right. And that's brilliant and bittersweet and hard. In the new year in the Guardian magazine, the columnists and writers were asked to sort of do anti-resolutions, things they weren't going to do. And Tim Dowling, who's one of our columnists, wrote this, which I think you'll sort of captures what you said. He said, don't fix anything until everybody in the house knows it's broken. This includes, but is not limited to, leaking taps, loose straw handles and the light in the fridge. But it's this bit that really raised my eyebrow. You get no credit for rescuing people from inconveniences they never got a chance to experience. Oh, now, wow. <laughs> that, I've searched for a phrase like that for quite a long time because talking on a, I can say, domestic level, I mean, obviously, 
saving people's lives is incredibly worthy. And the Grenfell story in your book gave me chills at the sort of foresight that you had almost like the premonition on the very day it happened you were talking mm. about a sort of big disaster that you had seen mm. happen on a, a smaller scale in another tower block in London have I remembered that correctly I had a research project to come up with a scenario and I came up with exactly that scenario having based it on going back and forth to a, a fire in in Lac-Magantic in Quebec so yeah I mean that that will haunt me for the rest of my life really I yeah I, d- I don't really know what that sort of does to you I mean you were right you didn't want to be right no but you could kind of sense that something was about to happen and I I think it's a must read for anybody really I think it's very true a little bit like the example with the nannies if you don't trust the babysitter but you think well I've booked her now that high cost of being right you're not looking to be victorious in that moment and you're not even look, looking to be it to be noted that you were right it's just that you you desperately want to have been able to prevent it or, or to have done something and that place is way too much almost you know it's a false power I never had the power to change any of it but to have pictured it and then to have seen it happen is it well it destroyed me and and I think then what it did do which was important for what I went on to do and important for getting my own family through was it readied me for feelings that came with the pandemic so my job title at Bath is professor in mass fatalities and pandemics at the center for death and society and I had been lobbying for how we would ready society and bring society back from pandemics since 2004 you know, you would be so laughed out of meetings if you tried to bring the issues that you might see in a pandemic to the fore. People didn't have time, certainly the last few years, if you brought the pandemic to a meeting. And then when it happened, I didn't feel the same pain that I'm seeing in my colleagues in terms of we've tried to warn you, why didn't you listen? Because I think I'd worked through that pain before. And that was the only that was the only hope that I could take from any of that. And then I was ready to mentor young colleagues through, you know, colleagues were suicidal about seeing a pandemic and, and not being listened to and the harms that we would see. It's bonkers. I was talking to somebody the other day in some of the planning that we did. We got into such levels of detail. We even talked about all the unruly dogs that we would end up with if people got pandemic puppies. That's that's mm. the level of discussions. And you we were had. absolutely right because it's all over the yeah, news today. I haven't been wrong yet, <laughs> which is and there's no sweetness in that. And my husband it will just roll his eyes at that point. But we weren't wrong on anything. And maybe mm. the one lesson that hopefully, but I think it would be very wishful thinking, is that maybe people would learn to listen to the other voices in the room, learn to listen to social and humanitarian issues. The, the same issues that we saw with vulnerability and disadvantage that we'd seen in flooding and then we saw in Grenfell are the same issues that we are seeing with the pandemic. That, 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 and that's true isomorphism, that you would take the same things. And in family life as well, we make the same mistakes over and over again. And there's another point actually about family life is protect your planners. I mean, you're very both sanguine and very able to articulate both what you are, but also the consequences of that. In a lot of families, the planner is derided. The planner is shut down. Don't bring that up now, you know, as we said before. So one plea I would have is if you have a planner family member, (laughs) they're not working as a planner. They're they're just a planner in the Mm. way they are. Look after them. 
I'm speechless because I'm agreeing so much with you. I think you have to look after them. And I, I think I'm, I fought for my place. And I think you said earlier, I'm sure you don't want to be right. I don't want to be right, actually. I'd love to be wrong sometimes because that would calm me down. But also being right, I think, means you'll listen to perhaps a bit more the next time. But you're right, you have to protect your planner. And certainly I haven't always been, but now I sort of, I pick my battles. In terms of your family, you know, in that way that people don't take family members seriously because they knew them when you were little, do your wider family take you seriously? Do they listen to you? Close family do since the pandemic. That made a big right. difference because I haven't been wrong yet. <laughs> Why do family know? And I love social media for this. There was a great set of threads just after Christmas of, I think, mainly American clinicians who'd gone home for Christmas. And one was a neonatal surgeon. She operates on tiny newborn and, pre- and premature babies and babies in utero. And her mum had said to her, don't chop the salad with this knife. I don't want you to hurt yourself. I think that is what family is. And that, again, is on us as well to recognise you can't grab people by the lapel and go, do you know what I am? Do you know what I do? Do you know what I think about? I'm thinking about right now. People will kind of disaster explain to me all the time. People cut out newspaper articles for me where, as you say, you've either been the advisor on them or you were at the meeting. And the book has helped much more than I ever imagined it would. And also it's answered a question that I think a lot of wider family and kin and friends had, which is, but you're so not who we picture to do this role. Mm -hmm. When you start to maybe give us advice, we switch off because you don't look like Daniel Craig, as I say, (laughs) you know, you don't look like you're in these (laughs) meetings. You've got some custard down your front. You're in a shirt at a family do. My mum said to me the other day, as mums do, she said, gosh, you always hold babies so strangely, like you're about to drop them. (laughs) People are are like looking at you as the woman and as the person not thinking... Yeah, no, I was in that meeting. And it's not like I change in a phone box. You know, I'll still be in the meeting with a little bit of custard down me and people are very tolerant. And, and sometimes I think that would stop access higher up. You know, I advise a lot of advisors, but I'm never necessarily allowed near the minister because I'm a bit of a rogue. But yeah, I do you know what's lovely about older me and 2024 me is I'm a lot more zen about that. I used to get, I'd sit in a family gathering kind of burning and I'd be like, why aren't you hearing me? And I've, the bad times are coming. And now I'm much more, because that just ruins a party. <laughs> I'm much more like, yeah. and the, I, like, the, the best thing sometimes about having a book out is when somebody says, have you read that book? And you literally go, I wrote that book. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that was an unexpected, but like, I am that person. Do they not know your name? Somebody recently said to me, oh, there's a great book about that by an emergency planner. And I was like, yeah, that is, that is me. And um, what did they say to that? It was quite awkward, but I enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it is a a really interesting dynamic. The other great thing about being able to write about who you are as a person and the things that shape you is people have been very much more forgiving. I think they used to assume because if if you did get introed by your your jobs or your degrees, people would assume that I was going to be really difficult and spiky. And I think the book has paved the way in a way that I didn't expect and that's been a lot easier mm. although I think in the next title of your next book might be I've not been wrong yet <laughs> Cer- <laughs> certainly that needs to be a t-shirt of some sort <laughs> but it there's that's quite a uh, that's quite a burden I mean we're laughing but to to sort of be right and I say that with no side to it do you feel a burden 
Yeah, I think you go back to your sort of original ideas of your Cassandras and not wanting to butcher a Greek myth that I've forgotten how it ends, but I don't think it ends particularly well. It's never easy. And I think one of the things is it's got some parallels with being quite empathetic, hasn't it, that you feel a lot and you kind of... It's not that I want to be not, not thinking about these things, but sometimes you... You have to very actively take a day off. You have to actively say, I'm not going to worry about this particular thing. I'm also very interested in people's reactions to me. I mean, Grenfell is not the only time where I've I've absolutely drafted the scenario that plays out. And actually, that still happens to this day because I'm very, very attuned to what's going on in the risk world. If somebody asks you for a scenario for an exercise, and this is true of many of my sibling emergency planners, we will write a scenario that's probably spot on and will be based on on very likely events for all the reasons we've talked about today you know near misses give you an indication of what's coming next it's not fortune telling mm. and what's really interesting is is people's reactions to me i think that's what i find hardest i've literally had people say i, I do worry that you are a bit of a jonah i do worry that you predict this too well and, and that was that was an interesting one is humor but behind it people are a little bit a bit nervous and yeah, I I don't know. People talk about obviously you think about your retirement and when you would stop, and I don't know that this these feelings will ever go anywhere. And that's like, would they ever switch off? I don't, I don't know. And that that can be quite a an interesting thought, I think. But it's something to manage in yourself. said that you don't really like a digital detox and I find that if I relax it takes me ages but then I find it very difficult to get back into gear so how do you sort of relax or switch off or give yourself some space away from planning well I think one of the things that was a big sort of story arc almost in the book is how much I wasn't taking work back to Tom for very obvious reasons that I was yes, working in you were disaster very good and he wasn't that. and a few people have kind of interpreted that even further which is quite right really in a way which was I think the minute that the door closed behind us certainly in our 20s and 30s we were very much just about the two of us and we enjoyed and we won't use the past tense dear I still enjoy each other's company as a couple Mm -hmm. and sometimes we would drive each other around the bend but that was that was my ultimate solace and still is really must stop using the past tense was him and me Mm -hmm. and that was not not in a saccharine way but just hanging out together. I loved my trashy TV. And one of my big things was I do enjoy my food, which is difficult because I don't I don't particularly enjoy moving about. <laughs> so I've always enjoyed it. Like I said before, the kind of the passion is matched by the power of the intuition or the planning is matched by a kind of delight in things. I've learned to actively force myself into key moments so like watching the children in a play they get very embarrassed because they get the whole of me and I will cry and I will whoop and I and I I stim quite a lot as part of my dyspraxia so I'll move and Tom will put his Mm. hand on his on my leg to say don't you're annoying the parents sat behind you I'm very visible in the audience of my kids carol concert which is mortifying for them and i'm i think a lot of things that we're identifying as things that are problematic in or or part of neurodivergence i've always that they've been always been part of my existence so feeling the disaster and feeling the aftermath is the same as 
the same strength of feeling of this is the most I mean when concerts for children restarted after the pandemic I just couldn't contain myself and Tom was like you have to stop all the mums behind can't see because you're Mm. so present and you're enjoying it so much I cry I have a good cry I have a good wail I love putting nice things in the diary. So the emergency planners have a theatre trip every now and again to see wherever our favourite musical is come from away. We'll have a Planthams disco. We'll have a Twitter movie night. I love the, the my diary is this yin and yang between, oh, Gordon Bennett, I've got to go to a recovery coordinating group for this terrible thing. And yay, we're going to the theatre on Saturday. And, that, and that's how I survive, I think. Yeah, I think of my life as a kind of matrix because I have very difficult letters in my guardian column. So I might have a child writing to me saying that they're Mm. suicidal or a child abuse problem or domestic abuse. And I sort of kind of have almost like an invisible grid in my day. And I think, okay, that's there. And then I'm going to go and I I find it very relaxing having something that I know I'm going to watch on the telly. Otherwise, I find it overwhelming knowing what to pick to watch. So I love being into a real series or even a book. And I think that is really important. Otherwise, I mean, the first five years of doing my column, I did slightly go under. I don't know if you had a similar sort of baptism by fire where you suddenly had to think, Lucy, you're going to have to do something about this. Otherwise, it's too much. Yeah, incredibly. And even now, even now. And you have to make a pact that the people who tell you that maybe you are burning out or people who tell you that you're taking on too much, you you, won't, you will listen to them. That's a, that's a privilege that you give them for the rest of your life, that you will always listen to that. I always say I was very lucky because when I started out in my career, the firm that owned the disaster management firm was American and my psychologists there were American. In fact, I, I check in with them very regularly and checked in just last week with with a friend there and they were very much more um, American <laughs> so they're very much more open to concepts well earlier than I think we were here of burnout and the need to debrief and the need to demob and they would train us not just in the things to look out for which I think Britain is starting to do but also the the kind of physical skills going home and changing out of your work clothes and having have different clothes for all women have their sort of their fight wardrobe but you have your different clothes for different things and so the the American advice was much more practical. I think I, mean, I laugh about it now because obviously everybody's now very hydrated and we have big debates, don't we, about sippy cups and adult adult water bottles. Things. But when mm. I started out, the American advice was literally when you are stressed and, and, and working in high stress situations, you will become dehydrated. This is the amount of water you need to drink. So I started out very disciplined or being disciplined I wasn't disciplined I was being disciplined by other people about how to look after my burnout that also you didn't take this work with you now that I'm talking to you but there's probably 10 different incidents that I'm advising on I have to learn not to take them into my sinew and my soul and that's exactly what you're saying there one of the kind of editorial decisions in the book that I remember chatting over with my amazing editor was how dark do I go And you must have this debate with which letters to include and what can the reader handle. And one of the reasons, somebody's just written to me in a direct message last night that said, I loved your book, but it was really graphic in in a couple of parts. But I'd love to talk to you more about that bit. And I didn't know whether that was a criticism because as a deliberate decision to say to the reader, I need you to know where I go so that you understand when I am saying 
but also I'm optimistic and also I see the brighter side of life and also I love my reality TV. You're realizing that I can compartmentalize and I can see the dark, but I can also see the light. Because if you thought I could only see like a little bit of dark, then you might just think I didn't really need to actively seek the light as you're doing there in your example. And and that's a that's a choice, but it's also a discipline. And I, I think one thing I remember this terrible sadness at the start of the pandemic, thinking nobody is training the clinicians for disaster work. Nobody is going out. I mean, the NHS was being quite uh, understandably convinced that because it saw difficult times, it saw austerity, it saw winter, it knew what its staff were about to face. And nobody was doing disaster self-care. And other people were coming to me for that. Social workers, teachers were saying, this is different, isn't it? And I was saying, yeah, you're going to have to train yourself to manage your day, your night, your life differently. And the only people that I couldn't get to were the healthcare workers. I've literally just done an event with the Royal College of GPs. It's four years too late. Mm. Gosh, that's so frustrating. One of the things I said in my introduction, which I think is really true of your book and you in general, is that you give details that humanise it and really hits you in the gut. And by doing that, and sometimes by nature they have to be graphic, but you make a global disaster small and personal. And I don't mean small as in insignificant. I mean it it really brings it home to you. It's very easy to kind of distance yourself from scary things, as we've said. Oh, that tsunami happened. I never go there. Oh, I don't do that. There was a detail in the book, I'm not going to go into it in here, but about the pigeons at the bus at the 7-7 bombing, which completely just, I'm never going to forget it. And some people might call that graphic, but what happened was graphic. So how are you supposed to explain those things? If you just said, oh, a bomb went off, then yeah, we know that. But what you bring to your work is, it's very human, those details. I think personally, I think you trod the line really well, but there's always going to be people that find certain things unpalatable. Thank you. You're talking about your children. How much do you talk to them about what you do? And are they good planners? They've embraced certain aspects of it. And what I've noticed, and I have been asked to give talks to younger people, sixth form and sort of probably teens upwards. And I also a trustee of a children's charity where we talk about sort of preparedness and, and safety and other things. But one of the things that I think the children have taken from it is, say they have a big day and they're starting to worry about it, channeling that into a little bit of gentle, not obsessive, but gentle list making or talking it through preparedness. We had quite a big storm this week and they both got a bit wound up by schoolmates and they're like, mom, I'm so worried that this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And I said, okay, so if this happens, what do you want to do about it? And both of them, their initial reaction was they went, why mom, is it going to happen? Is that what you mean? It is going to happen. And I said, well, there is a risk it will happen. Let's talk about, so that their obsession was, I think they'd seen some some footage, their obsession was trees blowing blowing over we already had those in the discussion I said okay if the trees blow over and they blow onto the house we've got our lamps we've got our phones oh okay so they talk it through with me and I think they've taken parts of it but it's like any family life I'm very insignificant sometimes I'm the provider of things they need and I found a piece of paper the other day that said uh, my mum is a great planner and that means she's always ready with the things that I need (laughs) 
I, I do. That's the one aspect of parenting that I think came a bit more naturally. Everything else I was struggling with, but I'm really good at the kit, like school yeah. uniform for the next term. Or I was great. I loved the baby kit bag, and the and and I'm actually the the other string to my bow that I've yet to monetize is I'm a brilliant hospital kit planner. If you want to know what needs to be in your baby bag, I'm your woman. So I love that aspect, and I still do. I'm like, right, girls, you've got that trip to Chester Zoo. What's going in your rucksack? And they love that. <laughs> well, you a- see, we've got the title <laughs> of your next book, and now we've got your daughter's <laughs> quote for the cover. My mum is a great planner and has everything I need or whatever exactly she said I mean that kind of encapsulates everything I learned quite a bit about sort of children and with my eldest when she was about five and at school they did visit to the fire station and she became really scared about fire and I started off sort of saying to her I suppose not not doing the right thing I hasten to add I was kind of just trying to sort of like push it away yeah and it wasn't helping so then I learned a really valuable lesson and it sounds a bit like what you did with your children and the, the trees and the storm. And, and I said to her, okay, what are you worried about the fire? And I really broke it down to practical things. And one yeah. of the things she was worried about is I just had her baby sister and she was like, who would you carry for? Who would you yeah. get first? Yeah. And what she wanted was a fire drill. And so I broke it down and I said, well, it depends where the fire starts. We've got fire alarms, we've got smoke alarms, so they will go off. They should give us a chance to get out. I said, trust me, if it's an emergency, I'll be able to carry both of you. And then she asked if I could bring her little rabbit. And I said, yes, there'll be room for Mimi, but you must never go back into the house. Then I started being a bit like, yes, but don't go back in the house for Mimi. But if I can, I'll grab it. And it really calmed her down. And children actually like practical solutions to problems. And we can sometimes skip a bit ahead and give them all sorts of stuff or kind of try and calm them down too much. But what they need are those deeply practical kind of solutions. Okay. And not be afraid to talk about it. Okay, let's talk about what if that happens and let's plan for it. I think one of the aspects of being a mother in particular, if you've done your job right, is at times your children can take you absolutely for granted. They don't have to waste time stressing about whether you'll be there and whether you'll have done that because they know that you will. So it sounds like an insult, but I kind of think that's a sort of a real compliment. I don't want to ask you too much about your job but are there any places I should avoid in the next six months oh no that would be the last thing I would want anybody to do just keep keep uh keep enjoying life and booking life I do I think people are rushing for things to be back to normal and, and that's part of this whole emphasis on this whole discussion isn't it like talk, talking through what you're asking of the world and planning various eventualities and making space for things I'm amazed at how many people are traveling without insurance at the moment. that's the only thing I would suggest is please do travel with holiday insurance but apart from that no I'm a living and loving and laughing person on holiday. Well, you very much do enjoy life. And yeah. I know that when we, we've spoken before that we've joked that my other friend Lucy says only the paranoid survive. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, and, and I think that I think there is definitely, I don't know, for me, kind of forward planning on a, shall we say, domestic level enables me to relax and enjoy my life. But then that, that's something I've fine tuned over the years but but I guess not everyone's a planner are they so I can't imagine what it would be like if you and I went on holiday together I mean just be like how many clipboards would there be <laughs> and, and also I, 
think one thing is sometimes I can be spectacularly monofocused and forget something. And one of the things, so I have, as I say in the book, wonderfully supportive colleagues around me and I have a, a driver and there's a, always a joke about when I am at things as somebody to make sure that I'm not in the middle of a wardrobe crisis. I'm often quite sort of physically chaotic. I've always got too many bags and things like that. But I think we'd have a very good time is my instinct. <laughs> <laughs> and has your driver been able to follow you to, to Wales? No, we're obviously still very good friends. It's He's a huge part of my life, him and his family. But he's still based in Doncaster where he's a very successful driver. But I have a new driver and I chronicle those travails on my social media because we're currently negotiating what our playlist will be on our longer journey. But that was, again, a sort of key part of recognizing what I needed to be able to get to these things but also part of what we've been saying today about how much it can take out of you and I'm very grateful to those people that support me and one of the things if I am in a difficult meeting and it's gone on a long time and we've discussed some of these issues the joy and privilege of just being able to get into the car with somebody and, and play what is currently the bodyguard film score at high volume is one of the ways to keep yourself sane maybe not him sane but me (laughs) are you working on a second book I'd love to. Yes, I'm starting to put some ideas down. It's been beyond anything I expected the first and also the privilege of having readers. I'd never really thought of that, but I'd love to do another one. Yes. Well, there's so many things that you could write about. You've got so many, (laughs) so much expertise, so many different areas. And we're going to do another podcast, aren't we, in the next series about baby loss, which is something which very sadly you know a lot about. And I'm very glad you've got your two lovely daughters now. If people want to follow you on Twitter, you're at Lucy Go Bag. What's that? What's that about? <laughs> so the go bag, it's actually a much debated com- concept in emergency planning. We all have them ourselves as emergency planners. And also there's always a discussion as to whether we should encourage more citizens to carry their own go bag. So it's a slightly jokey term for the bag that I think many of us have. And that can just be your large handbag with your tissues and your spare pants and your paracetamol and your bottle of water and your way of playing music and your breath mints and all those kind of things. in. So that's a go bag. I see. That's a a great label for Twitter. Lucy, (laughs) I could talk to you all day, but we need 28. I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to me and explain to our listeners about planning and a little bit of an insight in what you do. And just a reminder, if you want to buy Lucy's book, and I really recommend you do, it's called When the Dust Settles. Do you have a website? I do. That's whatevernext.info. Thank you. Right. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Lucy. Thank you. The series is produced by Hester Kant. The artwork is by Low Cole and our music composer is Toby Dunham. If you'd like to read my column in The Guardian, it's every week in the Saturday magazine. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in, so much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free, so if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.